Today on Focal Point with Pastor Mike Fabares. We always need to think as a team. We need to think as a team. The Bible would affirm this and the New Testament would scream it off the page that we are not individuals trying to make it in the Christian life. We are corporate. We are a body. We are an organism, not an organization of individuals. And that means that when I have problems, the body has problems. You know the phrase, no man is an island? It means no one is completely self-sufficient. And because we're part of God's family, we know we can entrust ourselves to Him when we're going through dark days. Today on Focal Point, Pastor Mike Fabares is reminding us that we're members of a body, the body of Christ. And that means we're on a team, so we don't have to face life alone. Well, here's Pastor Mike with the message titled, How to Be Godly in the Worst of Times. This week in my study of 2 Samuel 15, I was preparing to talk to you about trials and difficulties in life. And I made the mistake early this morning of asking God to really get me in the right mood to preach about trials and difficulties. That's a mistake. You never want to pray that. As I walked out in the rain with my umbrella to my car, which my homeowners association had chosen to tow away last night, My brother, who is a pastor here in Southern California as well, got his uh, car stolen two weeks ago. And and I started thinking about how many cars are parked in Orange County um, in various places that belong to people that cheat on their taxes and, you know, beat their wives and sell drugs and stuff like that. I'm thinking, God, you know, there's lots of cars you can tow and have stolen. Um, You know, what's the deal? And it's a, it's a profound theological question that people have been asking for a long, long time. Why do, why do bad things happen to, to good people? Now, of course, if you know your theology, none of us are truly good, but at least you can ask the question, why do, why do bad things happen to, to God's people? I mean, we're supposed to be special. He, he, he loves us. He cares for us. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. He's going to, to accept us as his own kids. Then, then why in the world is, does he let this stuff happen? Now, that's a question that's asked in a lot of different passages of scripture and answered in in several biblical ways, and we've addressed it several times. But I think the concern of God this morning in this particular passage of scripture is not so much why it happens, although there are good answers to that very good question. The real issue for us this morning is what are we supposed to do when bad things happen to God's people? I think there is certainly a higher standard for us Though we're not put in a little cocoon, we're not uh, protected from trials, we're not the, the boy in the plastic bubble, as it were, being uh, shielded from all the difficult things of life, how is it that we're supposed to respond? And I think that's where the difference lies. It's not that Christians don't get cancer and, and, and non-Christians do. It's not that, that, that uh, non-Christians get their car stolen and Christians don't. It's that we're supposed to be markedly different when it happens. How are we supposed to respond? Well, I think David provides us with a stellar example in 2 Samuel chapter 15. And I'd like you to look at it with me this morning and hopefully leave with three real important reminders as to how we're supposed to be qualitatively different from the rest of the world when we hear the word, you're fired, or the the word divorce, or bankruptcy, or 
you know, it's just not working out any longer. What are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to act? What should our response to be? Those kinds of things ought to set us apart. Because it's not that if you have Christ in your life, you'll be shielded. But if you have Christ in your life, you ought to be different. There ought to be a response to trials and sufferings and crises of life that makes you quite different. Now, the crisis that hit David was one that you need to understand the magnitude of. It's not really dramatically stated for us in verse 13, but it is huge. When the messengers come and they tell David, hey, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. That's gigantic. You might remember Absalom, the wayward, rebellious son of David, who was trying to position and jockey himself into the limelight and into the hearts of Israel's people. He had acquired chariots and horses and had all the trappings of royalty. He had uh, deceived the people in very subtle ways and putting down David and flattering the people. And he had stolen the hearts of the people. He had manipulated circumstances. He had even, in essence, he had, he had taken hostage the primary nobles, the government officials of Israel in his little deceptive ploy to go to Hebron, 22 miles away, and sacrifice there. So we have David in a very vulnerable position. Without his key military leaders, we have him without the support of most of Israel, and we have him there recognizing that not only in this statement had he lost the loyalty of his son, he had lost his job, his source of income, his security, and now in reality, he had a price on his head again, much like in his youth when he was running from Saul. Now he's going to be running from his very own son. This is a low point. This statement is, is, a, is loaded with all kinds of disaster and crisis written all over it. It's bad, and it's a bad day for David. Now, when a bad news were to hit my life with that kind of magnitude, I suppose the kinds of statements that would be bouncing around in my head and perhaps coming out of my mouth are statements like, why me? I'm in big trouble now. All my stuff is going to go to him. I'd better leave and protect myself. I can't believe all this is coming down on my life. I have been forgiven and God has said he's forgiven me and I've tried to be faithful in my response to my own problems in my life and, you know, a lot of I's and a lot of me's. That, I think, is the natural response and yet David's response is quite different than that in verse 14. Notice it in the middle of the verse. His response is, come, we must flee. None of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin upon us and put the city to the sword. Now, that may be, in your mind, uh, a bit of a weak point, but you'll see it developed as we read a few more verses here. The people in Israel may have turned their hearts to Absalom, but the people that knew David, the people that lived with David, the people that surrounded themselves in the city of David and actually had interaction with David, they had a different mindset. They were quite loyal. And they were loyal, I think, with a kind of undying loyalty to the king because David thought and acted this way. It was always us. It was always we. It was a, a corporate mentality that I think completely dominated the, the dealings of David with those around him. And because of that, he had people, if you look at it in verse 21, he had people like Ittai, the Gittite, who was from Gath, a, a Philistine capital city, who would say things like this to him in verse 21, as surely as Yahweh lives and as my Lord the King lives, wherever my Lord the King may be, whether it means life or death, there will your servant be. Can you imagine hearing statements like that from a guy you don't even really know that well? 
It happens because David is the kind of person that shows loyalty. He shows solidarity. He shows this kind of corporate mentality with everyone around him that people, when they meet him and when they get to know him, even just a little bit, they say, I'll be with you. If you're having trouble, I'm there for you. Life or death, good times, bad times, easy times, hard times, I will stand shoulder to shoulder with you. And I'll go wherever you need to go and I will be with you, even if it's at great sacrifice to myself. I put it this way in your outline, the very first thing that we need to do when we face crises and trouble in our life, whether it be minor or major, we always need to, jot this down, think as a team. We need to think as a team. The Bible would affirm this and the New Testament would scream it off the page that we are not individuals trying to make it in the Christian life. We are corporate. We are a body. We are an organism, not an organization of individuals. We are people that are to lose our individuality in very real sense and understand that we're part of a body. And that means that when I have problems, the body has problems. When I am told that I have cancer, people around me in the body of Christ feel that pain. When my marriage is going, uh, taking a turn and, and it's becoming difficult and, and there's crisis there, that there are people around me that feel that pain. How much so? Look at verse 23. It says that when David, who really is the target of Absalom's frustration, is leaving town, and everyone else, by the way, could have said, I'm sticking around for Absalom. I mean, Absalom was not going to hold it against him if the people in Jerusalem were going to welcome Absalom with palm fronds and say, welcome, new king. They could have easily done that. But instead, when David was hurt, look at it, verse 23, the whole countryside wept aloud. They were, they were hurting. Reminiscent of the New Testament that says, when one part of the body weeps, what should we do? Well, we should weep with it. When there's rejoicing in one part of the body, we rejoice with it. There's that solidarity. Now, that sounds ridiculous in this context, doesn't it? I mean, think about it. Here, one guy on a stage, you know, ranting and raving about Bible passages and giving us all this stuff to live by, and I, I'm not getting any input. I don't, this is not a two-way conversation, right? And, and to say that is just a nice platitude, but it's hard to really think that works because you know what? It doesn't really work in this setting. It does not work. In this setting, it does not work. That's why you need to recognize that in the New Testament, there's no deceptive ideas about what the church is in terms of being something that we meet once a week. You sit in a chair, you look at a guy preach the Bible. That is not what the church is all about. It's part of what the church is about. It is a facet of the church. But if that's all that church is to you, then you're really not experiencing church. Because that is never going to accomplish this kind of relational networking that you're going to get at another level. You see, in the New Testament, you could have churches with thousands of people, three, four, five thousand people in the early church. And Peter would stand up and scream his lungs out so everyone could hear him on the Temple Mount. And the Bible says that was just part of church because you know what happened after that? Thousands of people would split up and they would congregate in small groups and they would meet throughout the week. You know what this is like when you get together on a Sunday morning? It's like the coach standing up and talking to you. One of the coaches talking to you about how to play the game. Go out there and live the Christian life. And I'm giving you some things that hopefully will be helpful for you. But you cannot successfully live the Christian life with locker room talks from the coach. You've got to be huddling up on the field in the midst of the game. And you've got to have input and you've got to be able to have responsiveness from people. And that means that your church experience needs to include a network of Christian friends that know your life. And if you say right now, I don't have that, then you're not really experiencing church the way it was designed to be. Because you're going to hit trouble in your life and you're going to go to an outline and you're going to look in a worship packet and you're going to look at things that you've been taught, but you're not going to have people to stand by. And Ecclesiastes is so clear, woe to him who falls and doesn't have someone there to help him up. 
You cannot live as an individual Christian trying to make it on your own. You need to recognize that all of us are required to get involved on another level. I didn't play much organized football, but I played a lot of schoolyard football. Days like this were perfect for it. We'd go out, have the guys from that neighborhood play against guys from this neighborhood, and we'd get out there and we'd have a huddle between every play. And in the huddle, of course, guys were saying, I'm wide open, that guy's so slow, covered me, throw me the ball. And sometimes you'd have a guy say things like, you know what, I'm getting beat up over here, and the guy's plowing right past me, and I need help, he's twice my size. And you know, I remember saying stuff like that in the huddle, in the schoolyard game, and I've never had anybody respond to me like, you know, that's nice, I'll pray for you. That never was the response in the huddle. Because in the huddle, that was the perfect time for me to share, I'm struggling, I'm hurting, I need some help. And the guys would respond, great, we'll gang up, we'll go this side, we'll sweep, we'll block, we'll go forward, you hit them high, I'll hit them low, whatever. We'd come up with a plan to deal with the problems that we faced. The problem is here that in church, if you think this is church, then all you're experiencing is, is the locker room pep talk before you go out to play. If you don't huddle up regularly in the Christian life, you're in trouble. Because you'll never have guys like Ittai stand next to you and say, whatever your problem is, I'll be there for you. Now, what is it and how can I help? Now, stop, it. stop feeling pity for yourself if you're starting to feel that. Oh, I don't have any friends like that. Oh, nobody cares about me like that. You know how David had the kind of appeal that he had to people like that? I think it's bound up in some of the personal pronouns over there in verse 14. He didn't think individually. He wasn't in it for himself. He wasn't just a person thinking about personal success in the Christian life. He saw his life as part of a corporate entity. He was part of a community of people. And so people responded to that. What am I saying? You need to be loyal to people. You need to be asking people how you can help. You need to build a network of two, three, four, five people that you know. That's why our small groups and our sub-congregations in our church are designed for people to get to know each other. Because we're never going to successfully live the Christian life without it. You want to get ready for your next crisis? Make sure you don't fall into the trap of feeling like you're facing it all alone when it happens. Because it will happen. God will not exempt you from trials and troubles and difficulties. He's going to be sure to let you suffer physically and emotionally and spiritually. You're going to feel those pains. The question is, will you face it alone? Or will you face it with a team of people that will stand by you? Invest in that today. Make sure that's a part of your schedule. Make sure those relationships are priority. They're more important than your favorite television show. Do you understand what I'm saying? These need to be the priorities of life so that when you face the trial, like David, you don't have to face it by yourself. Verse 24. Not only was he thinking as a team and having people rally around him, but when the religious leaders show up, it's interesting to note the kinds of things he authorizes and the response that he gives to them. Verse 24, Zadok. He was one of the priests. He was there too. And all the Levites, those were the religious leaders. And they were carrying the Ark of the Covenant and they set it down. And Abathar, the priest there, he offered sacrifices until all the people had finished leaving the city. Now think about that. Does that even make any sense? You're moving into exile. You don't know how long you're going to be there. And you're willing to kill some of the provisions, the animals that you're going to need to live on. You're willing to sacrifice. See, it shows me that if David is going to put up with that, authorize that, and, and, and stand there as an official and allow this to happen, he's not there shaking his fist at God. Even when his life goes crazy and the circumstances of his life go really bad, he's not anxious. He's not freaked out. And not being freaked out like that, he shows this incredible calm, not only in saying, God, you're great, you're worthy of all of our stuff, here's a token provision of what we have to show you how great you are, not only do they participate in regular worship, but he says in verse 25 to Zadok, you know what, take that ark back to the city. Because you know what, if, if 
Absalom is supposed to be the king, then that box belongs there in that city. Notice how he says it. If I find favor, middle of verse 25, in Yahweh's eyes, then he'll bring me back and let me see it in his dwelling place again. But if he says, I am not pleased with you, then David says, I'm ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. Wow, what an incredible peace and resolve to whatever God has for him. His future, basically, he's saying, you know what, God, it's in your hands. I trust you. You know what, this illness that the doctor has diagnosed, if, if this is what God has for me, you know what, I'm resigned to his will and, and whatever he wants. And, and if I have to live sick for the rest of my life, then, then God, I, so be it. You're good and I trust you and my future is in your hands. And you know what, God, if, if this relationship ultimately does completely disintegrate, you know what, God, I don't want that and it'll be painful and it's not what I signed up for, but God, your future, it's, it's in my hands. God, this job was everything I always wanted. But you know, if, if I end up getting laid off like they're telling me I might, I'm not gonna panic. I can't be anxious about that because God, if you don't want me at that job, then, then I'm not gonna be there. Do you see that kind of peace in mature Christians that you know sometimes? They face a trial and you watch them and they're just steady. And you say, wow, how do they do that? They do it because like David, I put it this way in your outline, they leave their future to God. They just leave it up to God. They say, my future, it's up to God. And panicking and fearing and being anxious and freaking out in my life is not what I'm going to do. As a matter of fact, in the Christian life, this is one for you to crochet on a, on a pillow and put it on your couch. Are you ready? You have no right to freak out as a Christian, right? Put that down, put it on a plaque or do something with it because that needs to be the phrase that you need to remember when the rest of the world in the midst of their crisis is pulling their hair out and talking to their therapist and getting ulcers. You need to recognize that in the Christian life, you've got no option to do that. Let me prove it to you. Keep your finger here. Turn with me to Matthew chapter eight. Here's a scenario for you. You got Jesus in your boat, okay? Think about that for a minute. You know, you're, you're, you're just sailing and you're thinking, no problems here. Look who I got as a passenger. I got the Messiah. I, I mean, there he is. Ain't nothing bad happening today. Look at it. Matthew chapter eight. Notice what's said here in this passage. Verse 23, he got into the boat. Disciples followed him without warning a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was, hello, what? Sleeping. I can just see him. And the guys on the deck are going, ah, we've never seen a storm like this. And you're just freaking out. I mean, this is poetic because in our lives, it doesn't feel that way sometimes. Crisis. Trials, we're praying, we're begging, we're pleading. God, help change this. Make sure the test doesn't come back that way. God, I don't want to get laid off. Our finances, if that happens, then it's all starting to happen. The storm is breaking loose in our life. And it's like, God, and he's like sleeping. I mean, that's what it feels like. I thought I had Christ in my life. I thought God was going to keep me from this. I thought he loved me. And so they do what you and I would do. We, they ran down and said, Jesus, wake up. Look at it, verse 25. Disciples went and woke him up and said, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. And notice what happens in verse 26. Jesus wakes up and says, ah, really? Quick, grab the life preservers. Jump, swim. Every man for himself. You see that there in verse 26? All that happens 
Because Jesus knows this is an incredible storm. Wow, you ought to be scared. We could all die here. No, he doesn't say that. He focuses in on the core problem for people freaking out about their future. He says this, oh, you of little faith. Now I'm going to be really offended by that response, right? Like, what are you talking about? And especially with this next phrase, why are you so afraid? I mean, in all, with all due respect, I'd slap my forehead and say, duh, because there's a huge storm here, Christ. We're going to die. That's why we're freaking out here. I mean, that's what I'm going to say. And he says, no, you don't have faith. Why are you afraid? Do you see what he's implicitly saying there? He's implying that you've got no right to freak out. Storm, bad storm looks really, 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 really bad. You know what? I expect you to be calm because your level of faith ought to increase to match the circumstance, which means if it's really getting squirrely in your life, if it's really getting weird, if it's really getting bad in finances or relationships or your health, if it's really bad, he says, I don't expect you to freak out. I expect you to trust me to have faith, to put your future in my hands, to say that if this is the day for Peter, James, and John to die, I guess this is the day for Peter, James, and John to die and to resign yourself to God's future. Now, granted, that's very, 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 very hard and a very mature thing to do, but that should be the focus. How much faith do I have? God, help me to trust you with my future. I have been for many years a very immature reader, and hopefully I'm making progress in this area. But early on in particular, I remember as a teenager, if a book didn't make sense to me, like in the first few pages, you know, it's like, pfft, you know, give me, give me a book that makes sense. Because I had a problem hanging in there if things got twisted and confused right away. But you know that if you have that approach to literature or reading, you're not going to read very many good books. Take a novel, for instance, you're not going to be able to figure out the book in the first few chapters. If it's a good novel, there's lots of twists and subplots, a lot of tension, a lot of things that don't make sense. In chapter five, it's looking pretty weird. But if you have the discipline and the patience and the faith in the author that this isn't just some waste of space, right? This isn't just, you know, a bunch of words on a page taking up useless space. If it really makes sense and there's a storyline and there's a plot, then it's going to be resolved. We're learning the importance of hanging in there when life gets confusing. You're listening to Focal Point and a message from pastor, author, and Bible teacher Mike Fabares called How to Be Godly in the Worst of Times. For more teaching from Pastor Mike or to share this message with a friend, visit focalpointradio.org. You can also download the Focal Point mobile app and listen on the go. In addition to listening to Pastor Mike here on Focal Point every day, did you know you can also read his writing? And this month, we're featuring one of his books that will help you refocus on Jesus while going through tough stuff. It's titled, Lifelines for Tough Times, God's Presence and Help When You Hurt. In this book, Pastor Mike challenges the idea that pain is the enemy and gives us encouraging examples from Scripture of times where God used hardship for good. He also shares the difficult personal experience of his daughter Stephanie being born with spina bifida and what he has learned through his family's many challenges. God didn't promise us an easy life, but he wants us to use every challenge to glorify him in new ways. Simple, but not easy. We'll send you a copy of Lifelines for Tough Times as our thanks when you make a donation to Focal Point this month. Give online at focalpointradio.org. 
If you prefer sending your donation by mail, write to Focal Point, Post Office Box 2850, Laguna Hills, California, 92654. We're so grateful for your support because it enables countless other listeners to explore the depths of Scripture with us each day. On their behalf, thank you. Now, even if you can't give today, we still want to hear from you. And when you let us know that you're listening, we'll send you a free CD from Pastor Mike's audio series, Lifelines for Troubled Times. Ask us about the CD called God's Presence and Help When You Hurt when you call 888-320-5885 or find it online at focalpointradio.org. Well, I'm Dave Drewy, inviting you to join us again Thursday as we continue the message, How to Be Godly in the Worst of Times, right here on Focal Point. Pastor Mike here. You know, it's an honor to be with you every day, helping you explore the depths of Scripture. But I want to be clear, no amount of Bible knowledge is ever going to save you. Be sure where you stand with God. Get in touch with us. We'd love to pray with you and for you. Visit us today at focalpointradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Focal Point Ministries.